Avoiding Disaster. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. As Florida prepares for Hurricane Ian, NASA is hoping to deflect another natural disaster, an asteroid. The agency successfully crashed a spacecraft into a space rock some 7 million miles away. And while this asteroid is no threat to Earth, what scientists learn from this cosmic collision could help us better prepare to avert a future strike. We'll talk with NASA's head of science, Thomas Zerbukin, about the agency's efforts to ward off asteroids. Then, climate change is increasing the frequency and severity of storms. As all eyes are on Hurricane Ian off Florida's Gulf Coast, NASA is keeping a watchful eye on the weather from above. We'll revisit a conversation about NASA's efforts to study climate change and its impacts here on Earth. The science of averting disaster. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. On Monday, NASA slammed a vending machine-sized spacecraft into an asteroid some 7 million miles away, on purpose. The goal is to measure just how much the collision knocked the asteroid off course. While this asteroid poses no threat to us, understanding how we can knock space rocks off track could help avert a future disaster to our own planet. To talk more about the DART mission and NASA's efforts to protect our planet from space-based disasters, we're joined by Thomas Zerbukin, Associate Administrator of NASA's Science Mission Directorate. Where did this idea come from to smash into an, an asteroid? That sounds like something out of science fiction, but it's science fact. Uh, where did the idea come from? Well, look, uh, uh, overall, right, we're really excited that the science missions in many ways can be used to protect life on Earth, right? And as we have the hurricane barreling in on, on Florida right now with all the predictions that are really concerning, we're remembering, of course, that you know a large fraction of the forecast power comes from spacecraft we build at NASA, that uh, our sister agencies are doing. We have, uh, sister agents are operating that, of course. Uh, we have, uh, in fact, uh, also assets up there that protect uh, humans in space, but also assets in space from space weather. And so when uh, we look at planetary defense, right, it's another way for us to really protect life. Now, planet defense, uh, you know, rocks that are flying from space is the stuff of movies. But of course, you look at the Earth and look at the moon and you realize over timescales of millions of years, this is very much ever present, frankly, for the small type of rocks. Every other week, it's, uh, you know, something is flying towards the Earth. And the question really is, what would happen if a rock was inbound at the scale of, you know, three, two, three times the Empire State Building, something that would really wipe out the city if it hit? What would happen? And uh, DART is the answer to that. We would seek to deflect it. But the question is, how well could we do that? That's what we're testing today. Mm -hmm. This mission launched almost a year ago. It's heading to an area, you know, some millions of miles away. And the target is just a few hundred feet wide. I mean, when you think of it, the analogy of a billiard shot, I mean, this is a pretty tough shot. How, how did the team make this happen and, and, and do this launch trajectory? It's, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. As you say, that's a Sort of from a billiard shot from one side of the United States to the other one and hitting the hole, right? It's that kind of 
uh, enormous accuracy, right? That is almost mind-boggling. And of course, uh, the way they did it is, uh, uh, you know, and they're still doing it, right, is is by designing a trajectory that allows kind of uh, over a 10-year orbit, you know, around Thanksgiving last year, we took off 10-year, 10-month, sorry, over a 10-month orbit, uh, uh, basically uh, allowing us to hit the uh, that uh, near-Earth object head-on. And by doing that, right, kind of what needs to happen is that kind of we, we know where it is in space, roughly. And so we are targeting in there. On, and now that we have it on camera, uh, we're making sure that we keep it in the crosshair, so to say. And as soon as the Morphus becomes visible, which we haven't seen ever, right, what we're actually going to hit, uh, we're going to target that and become, uh, you know, use it. Uh, as uh, as a target with the camera that is also there to investigate it. So so it's really a multi-stage kind of ever more accurate uh, technology to to actually hit. Gotcha. You mentioned you mentioned there's cameras on board. Um, is that the only way that you're going to be measuring this impact, or are there other assets that you're going to be tapping into to to see what actually happens when when dark strikes this this uh, asteroid on board on the spacecraft? Really, the key instrument is that one camera, the Draco camera. That's really both uh, the science instrument, the prime science instrument, but also the target camera. Uh, we have already uh, released uh, uh, days ago now a small CubeSat, kind of the size of a loaf of bread that's flying three uh, minutes or so behind uh, this spacecraft, this high-risk, high-impact uh, uh, little mission built by Italy called Lisha Cube is going to try to take an image of uh, uh, this, uh, uh, you know, of the Morphus uh, just after the impact. So, so we're going to do that. And of course, uh, we're also turning our head with the James Webb Space Telescope, Hubble, and even Lucy, uh, to he- look at this uh, impact and see whether we can see it. Uh, what you should see mostly there is really an, an increase of brightening, right? As uh, if you want uh, uh, gas and dust is emitted and the sunlight hits it, it becomes uh, brighter uh, all of a sudden. We're going to try to do the same from the ground as well, uh, which of course is also the way we're actually going to measure whether in fact the orbit duration, which is 12 hours now, has changed by one to three minutes, which is what we're expecting. Mm-hmm. So literally all eyes are on this thing, right? Every every space telescope you've got, and it even brought a little film crew with it too. That, that's that's really cool. Yeah, that's exactly right. We're trying to get the maximum of data out. The key data are about uh, really that orbit change, which by the way, I think just a genius idea. It's like obviously not my idea. It's this uh, Andy Chang who came up with this idea here at APL of using this two-body system to actually measure the speed difference, which, uh, you know, it would be very, very much harder if there was, uh, if the asteroid was in orbit around the uh, the sun, right? Because it's like the changes are minuscule. So we want to uh, measure it in a very low gravity field, not in a strong gravity field. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that. So so this, this one asteroid, uh, Didymos, that that would kind of serve as a analogous Earth, right? And then this asteroid that's going around it would be the asteroid that might be threatening us. And then so you're using the physics that are already there to measure this uh, this change in orbit. Right? Did I get that right? Yeah, I mean, you kind of think of it like uh, the the you know the Morphus, which is the one we're going to hit, right? Kind of think of it as as you said, as the incoming threatening. Uh, 
uh, you know, body. And I hasten to say that, of course, it's not a threat. It's neither a threat now nor will it be in the future under any of the circumstances that we can imagine. But but imagine that as an incoming uh, uh, threat. And then, now the question is, how do we bump it out of the way just enough so it would not hit the Earth as it's coming in? And, and of course, what we want to do is change its velocity, uh, size, and direction ever so slightly, especially the direction. And that's really what we want to measure and learn from. And for that, uh, as you said, uh, kind of the orbit around uh, Didymus is, is precisely the right way to do it because it becomes measurable kind of uh, by measuring the orbit duration. It becomes uh, discernible from the Earth without having to measure at the highest accuracy with laser ranger or whatever the, uh, the, uh, the, the bump out of the way. Obviously, we, you haven't collected the data yet, but do we do we have an idea as to how much DART may bump this off of its orbit? And if you were to scale this up, would it be enough to stop a much larger asteroid that is, in fact, a threat to our planet? Uh, we believe that in the orbit, it could uh, lead to orbit duration changes between one or even three minutes. Uh, so, so it really depends on how exactly this asteroid is made and how much stuff flies off the front. You know, kind of if there's a big cloud of dust and uh, kind of uh, uh, rocks that are flying in the direction of the impactor, right? Kind of there's, of course, that, if you want, provides more momentum towards the, the asteroid. And uh, uh, the question you're asking, would it be enough uh, to deflect? Uh, the answer is yes. We believe, uh, perhaps with a slightly larger uh, spacecraft, if we would do it, if we catch it early enough, kind of a uh, threatening asteroid early enough, it is precisely the kind of maneuver that we would seek to uh, uh, to apply uh, to deflect the uh, uh, an incoming threatening body out of uh, its uh, trajectory from Earth. Mm -hmm. So the math checks out there, um, but would you have to scale up the the projectile? So, so DART itself is, I've read it described as a vending machine-sized spacecraft. If you're looking at a bigger asteroid that you need to deflect a little bit more, would you have to scale up that vehicle? What would that look like? Yes. So there's uh, two or three variables that really matter. The first one is how early before impact on Earth do you see the asteroid? The more time you have, the less bump you need, so to say. So that's the first variable. The second uh, variable is uh, how heavy is uh, the asteroid and how fast is this coming? Kind of, it's really kind of the product of those two, how heavy times how fast, right? That's what we call momentum, like how much kind of punch does it have, right? Depending uh, how big that is, uh, we need more punch from our side or less punch, right? Kind of how heavy does the spacecraft have to be and how fast do we ram it in? And so, so uh, yes, under certain circumstances, we want to uh, put something much heavier into it or, or even kind of go out uh, of, of uh, Earth orbit and come in much, much faster to really take a lot of momentum into that body. So yes, all of those matter depending on uh, the exact threatening uh, uh, you know, object and, and its characteristics. And again, we should remind our listeners, this particular asteroid is no threat to us, um, but the DART mission is just one piece of NASA's broader planetary defense plan. Dr. Z, I'm, I'm wondering if you could bring us up to speed on some of the other things, those other weapons in the agency's arsenal to, to kind of prevent uh, another catastrophic collision with our planet. So first and foremost, what uh, many people 
are not aware of that every night there's telescopes in the United States and around uh, the planet looking at the sky and uh, looking for threatening objects. So every night uh, from uh, Haleakala, Mount Haleakala on uh, the island of uh, Maui and Hawaii, uh, we're discovering three to four objects that are near-Earth objects, right? Kind of by imaging the sky with uh, some of the most advanced imagers. So, so for us, what we're trying to do is continue that. We found uh, at the... Uh, at these object size of uh, Dimorphos, the one we're going to hit, and larger, we found, largely speaking, 45% of those. Uh, there's another 10,000 uh, or even 15,000 or so uh, such objects remaining to be found. And in order to do that, what we're actually working on right now is a mission called NeoSurveyor that's going to launch in the second half of this decade, which is out there really looking also at dark and red objects, kind of things that are really hard to observe on Earth. So for us, after dark, the highest priority is really to catalog, if you want, all threats that are out there and then uh, go the next step, uh, including um, kind of developing highly responsive missions that when an asteroid comes in, we actually, you know, it's already waiting in space, let's say, or on the ground, ready to go and when something happens, when a threat arises, we immediately can get it out there and, and be responsive. So it's going to, as we're building the arsenal uh, for that we have to defend ourselves against uh, planetary objects, you know, all of these matter. That was Thomas Zerbukin, Associate Administrator of NASA's Science Mission Directorate. Dr. Z recently announced his retirement from NASA by the end of this year. We'll hear more from him as he reflects on six years in the role on a future show. But still to come on this show, all eyes are on the tropics as Hurricane Ian moves closer to Florida. NASA is monitoring a changing climate that leads to more frequent and severe storms. How the agency is eyeing the tropics from above. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. Climate change is increasing the frequency and severity of storms. As all eyes are on Hurricane Ian off Florida's Gulf Coast this week, NASA is and has been keeping a watchful eye on the weather from above. We'll revisit a conversation about NASA's efforts to study climate change from above and its impact here on Earth with NASA's Karen St. Germain. She's the director of NASA's Earth Science Division. It's great to be with you, Brennan. So, Karen, let, let's talk about... Um, historically, NASA's role in monitoring uh, a changing climate on this planet, what has it done in the past? NASA is the U.S. space agency that has the end-to-end -end capability to observe the Earth from, from space and deliverable, deliver actionable science. And NASA's been doing this for decades. And what I mean by end-to-end -end is we develop the technology and the mission concepts to look back at our Earth and make the observations we need. We design or, or build and, or acquire the systems that can make those observations. We launch them, we collect the data, we, we perform the research that gives us the understanding of the Earth system, and we uh, support the applications of that science. And, uh, and much of that work has supported our understanding of climate change. 
Karen, tell me, because this is for radio, uh, tell me what, what these things see. What, what, what kind of, what, what are you actually seeing from, from space? Well, the, the uh, systems that we launch that orbit the Earth, they look at, they, they give us this unique view of the whole Earth as a system. So they look at the ocean surface. They look at the ice in the Arctic. They, uh, they look at the atmosphere uh, and give us profiles of what's happening in the atmosphere. And of course, they look at uh, what's happening on land and, uh, and including things like soil moisture and uh, vegetation and, and those sorts of things. So the idea is we look at all of the elements of the Earth system, and that allows us to understand how the Earth works as a system model it and get to a predictive capability. This has been part of NASA's history for almost 50 years now with with a bulk of of a lot of this these missions launching in the 90s but you know going into the 2020s here and with with this NASA administration there is a, a huge focus on earth observation as it comes to monitoring climate change. What's ahead? There I believe there's what four missions <laughs> just this year that are that are launching. I mean tell tell me about the motivation for, for NASA's interest in the here and now and, and these missions that are happening this year? We have about 23 different uh, uh, missions on orbit today. And as you said, we'll be, we'll be launching a number of new missions this year. We have, uh, we have had strong support both within the administration and on Capitol Hill over decades for a sustained effort to understand the Earth as a system. So this portfolio of programs uh, is continuously evolving to answer the next most uh, important uh, scientific questions about how the Earth system works. But in particular, I'll highlight two of our upcoming missions this year, uh, TROPICS and SWAT. The TROPICS is, uh, uh, is a series of satellites. We'll start launching these in March, and they will collect high resolution observations of precipitation and storm intensification, um, particularly over the oceans. And these are these are small satellites. These are CubeSats. Uh, it's a constellation of 12 CubeSats, each weighing uh, about eight pounds or a little uh, the equivalent of about a gallon of milk. And these CubeSats will use uh, a technique called passive microwave radi- uh, spectrometry it, they will provide soundings of temperature and moisture in the atmosphere and give us rapid refresh so we'll be able to see how storms intensify. Uh, and, and that's increasingly important, of course, because uh, with climate change, as the oceans warm, they are fueling these tropical storms and we're seeing more incidents of uh, intensification from tropical storm to hurricane, for example. Mm-hmm. and increasing frequency of rapid intensification. And so we were really trying to understand under what circumstances does that happen? Mm-hmm. The other mission is a SWAT. That's the Surface Water and Ocean Topography Mission. And this is a collaboration with the French Space Agency, uh, CNES, and also uh, having contributions from the Canadian and UK space agencies. So it's a great example of uh, one of the ways that we we do many of our missions is through international collaboration. Right. But SWAT is going to help us better understand the oceans and surface waters. So oceans, but also the smaller bodies of water inland. 
and measuring how these bodies of water change over time. Um, and so they'll tell us how much water there is on our planet. And that's particularly important because today we don't have a good understanding of water in places uh, where it's hard to, uh, to make measurements from the ground or from the air. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, so this, these, this, of course, will help us uh, predict for coastal communities what kind of uh, changes they may see in their flooding. Likewise, river deltas and, and inland water bodies. Mm-hmm. So those are just a couple of the upcoming missions immediately. Mm-hmm. And then we are planning for the next generation of missions which we're calling the Earth System Observatory. Mm-hmm. Um, I was born and raised in Florida. I'm based here in Florida. So when, when you talk about storms and you talk about sea level rise, that's something that's that I'm very familiar with here. Is what we're going to learn from these two missions, both both SWAT and Tropics, is it going to have some kind of practical impact on on let's say Floridians who who may be impacted by these storms or who may be impacted by you know a, a rising sea level and a changing coastline? Absolutely, these missions will help us understand these processes much more clearly than we understand them today, and we work very closely with our sister agency, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which provides uh, your operational weather forecasts. NOAA, uh, for example, is the the home of the National uh, Weather Service as well as the Hurricane Center. So when we advance the scientific understanding of storms and sea level rise and those kinds of things, we work with our sister agencies to make sure that information gets as quickly as possible into the operational pipeline to improve the routine forecasts that uh, that the whole country relies on. Mm-hmm. Karen, you mentioned something earlier that that you're excited not only because of the administration's um, buy-in on this, but also Capitol Hill for a, a prolonged missions. Um, I've got to assume with with data like this, you know, point in time data is is probably very valuable. But you're looking at overall trends over a long period of time, right? I mean, is is that why this these kind of prolonged missions are so important is to find these trends and and identify these trends and in, in these changing data points? Yeah, that's that's one of the key elements here: observations and observations over time and improvements, new capabilities, the ability to observe things we haven't observed before. That leads us to better understanding of how the system works, the Earth system, that is. And and when you understand how the system works, you can model the system. And that modeling is what gives you the predictive capability, the ability to look out into the future and understand how things may continue to evolve. And that's really the key to preparedness and response to climate change. And it's important for every county in the United States. That was going to be my next question. I, I see your your picture behind you there that says Earth Science in Action. We talked about the Earth. We talked about the science. Uh, how is how is this these missions and and the work that you're doing in your office going to help kind of inspire or motivate action? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and it's one that I am uh, deeply passionate about. Is is press what I call pressing science into action, helping uh, to inform decision makers at every level, federal, state, local, community, tribal to make informed decisions. 
And uh, so I'll give you some examples. Uh, we work very closely to uh, help monitor and predict uh, drought and, and uh, water management approaches in the western part of the United States. We work closely with the Department of Agriculture on the, the reports and the, uh, the, the tools that the agriculture community really relies on to inform their decisions. And then, of course, uh, likewise, and we've, we've been talking about uh, the collaboration with NOAA to make sure that we're informing our ability to predict not just hurricanes, but also severe weather inland. We've seen record-breaking uh, tornado outbreaks and, uh, and those sorts of things. So, so that transition of the understanding we get from the scientific research, pushing that out to, to help people make decisions at every level is, uh, is an important part of our program. Mm-hmm. What about kind of ordinary citizens or, or the general public? I mean, is, is this data made available to them in a way that they can understand what's happening in, in their own neighborhoods, their own backyards? It is. We, we sustain a significant presence on the web, for example. All of our data are free and openly available. And, and we write a lot of stories about how the data, uh, where, they, where the data or the understanding comes from and what it means. Um, and, uh, and we're always looking to improve the way we, we talk with the general public about what we know, and just as importantly, how we know it, why we know it's true, mm-hmm. and, and help them understand the, the, uh, the changes that are coming in a way that is meaningful to them. And finally, Karen, what are you hoping to understand or gain over the next, say, five or ten years with with some of these missions that are launching? Well, you know, one of the things that I am most excited about is that we're starting the this this year. We're starting work on the next generation. By the end of this decade, what we are trying to put in in uh, into orbit is something called the Earth System Observatory. It is five new missions that together give us a holistic view of the Earth. We have missions on there that that uh, explore the atmosphere, the ocean, the land surface, the ice. And th- this treating all of these missions as a single observatory will give us a dramatically improved view of the whole Earth system. So we're working hard to build that so that by the end of this decade, we're in a much better position than we even are today. That was NASA's Karen St. Germain, the director of NASA's Earth Science Division. We're continuing to monitor Hurricane Ian and its impacts to Florida on 90.7 WMFE News. Be sure to visit WMFE.org Ian for the latest. That's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. Get it on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit WMFE.org slash Are We There Yet? Are We There Yet? is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. More space coverage is available on our website at WMFE.org. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.